We'll look at a couple of passages tonight. The next couple of weeks, especially next week, I'm going to really dive into some things. And I want to challenge us with this, uh, this thought that I've said several times. And um, really, uh, I want to kind of put some practice to it. And that is question the assumptions. Uh, I'm going to say a few things that, quite frankly, I didn't learn in college. And um, nor did I learn it under any pastor. Um, and I was really challenged with studying the scriptures, uh, which is a good thing. Um, questions should drive us to the scriptures. But to answer inconsistencies that I saw uh, in basic theology. And, um, uh, but we'll get into that probably more next week as we, uh, I'll spend an extra week uh, talking about the transition from the law to grace. But tonight we're going to talk about the dispensation of the law, the fifth one. And in, uh, in Galatians 3... To you. Uh, look at verse number 17. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should uh, make the promise of none effect. He's talking about the last week we talked about the dispensation of promise. God gave uh, Abraham a promise, but the law came about. And it actually gives the amount of time here, three, uh, excuse me, um, 430 years after. And Paul, of course, he's given a, a real doctrinal case in, uh, in Galatians about the issue of the dispensation of grace. But he brings us back to the promise and, uh, and then the carrying out to uh, the law afterwards. Uh, amazingly, God gave Abraham a promise. And, uh, and you know, we looked at that last week. And didn't really, right from the beginning, didn't really give him anything to do from, from the beginning. He kind of gave him a promise, and he believed God. But it wasn't until later that he gave him the circumcision, an actual a commandment to keep. Now, that wasn't what we'd call the law as far as the body of law yet. That would be what we're going to talk about, the Mosaic law. But uh, let's have a word of prayer as we dive into this tonight. Lord, I do pray that you'd help, uh, help us tonight. Help me to be understandable and clear. And, uh, and Father, I pray that you'd help us to think a little bit and to, uh, to take our questions to the Word of God, and, uh, and, and let, let the Bible teach us. And uh, but guided by your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray as, uh, as the author of this book that you would help us tonight as we, uh, as we look at some of these principles, and uh, may we handle the Word properly, may we rightly divide the Word of truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just a quick review. We've been using the term dispensationalism, and uh, if you don't like that word, we can say era, we can say age. Um, but the reason we have to, you know, we want to, I want to bring this back, and the reason I keep having just a brief review in the beginning is because uh, uh, we don't really talk like this. Really, dispensationalism hasn't been spoken often uh, in churches, uh, really since like the 1930s. Uh, this was a very common thing, and... Um, you know, very popular even uh, among Baptists was the Schofield Reference Bible, which was real, Schofield was a big dispensationalist. He got some things wrong. Uh, I, I, I've, I've got no problem saying that. Uh, one of the things he got wrong was the gap theory. But, um, uh, but one thing that the, the Schofield Reference Bible, if, if you have one or familiar with that, it kind of lays out some dates and kind of puts the things together. Of, of course, some notes that weren't original to Dr. Schofield, but uh, they actually go back to a, an older bishop and uh, who put some dates on these things, and, uh, 
But, uh, you know, I think those things are helpful Bible study tools. I have a chronological Bible, and in my chronological Bible, it has dates in there, which is kind of fascinating to kind of put a timeline together as you're reading the scriptures. Um, it's actually a fun uh, way of reading the Bible if you're doing a, uh, like a Bible through in the year to maybe change it up and read it chronologically, uh, where it's going to start off with, for example, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, or was with God, the Word was God and then a verse from Psalms, and then you jump over to Genesis 1.1. And it's kind of neat seeing it laid out that way. However, when you do that, you're going to find a lot of repeated verses too, and uh, especially when you start getting through Kings and Chronicles and how they overlap. But, but anyways, um, um, this was a common, uh, common thing that you would talk about. And, uh, and really what it is, when we say dispensation, it comes from the word to dispense. What, what is it we're looking at? We're looking at really uh, what God gave to man, dispensed to them information, a divine revelation. And, um, and so, uh, just by way of review, uh, dispensation begins when a fundamentally new revelation is given by God, which changes man's, mankind's responsibility to God and man. And primarily what we look at is really the responsibility to God. Uh, any other revelation doesn't, re, doesn't really fit the requirement. In other words, there's a lot of revelations that we get from the Word of God but not all of them drastically change something. You know, you've been reading along, and you know, you take somebody who has not had any coaching or anything, any theology, and you just give them a Bible and have them start reading. Their points are going to come to you and say, whoa, something really changed here. All right, and some of those very obvious ones, most of them happen in the book of Genesis. You look at the garden, to inside the garden, to outside the garden. You look at the flood. There's some drastic changes that take place along the way. Um... Neither a richer understanding nor fulfillment of prophecy constitutes the beginning of a dispensation. So sometimes you might call it progressive revelation. God gave a little bit of information here. Later on, he builds on it, and we have a deeper understanding of it. For example, in Hebrews 10, Paul talks about the rock that followed the church in the wilderness, Israel, and that rock was Jesus. All right. That doesn't mean that that rock now, when we look back and we read the, the journey uh, in Exodus, that all of a sudden that rock appearing is a new dispensation. We just have a fuller understanding uh, of typology, of how, of how that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and then a failure to recognize the fundamental changes, uh, I believe, is the most common error in biblical interpretation, leading to painful and drastic consequences of Christian thought and practice. It's failure to fulfill the command to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, you'll hear that verse referenced a lot, like I have in my life. I've heard it referenced a lot. I've even, I had even used it in really the wrong sense, but it literally means to cut straight. And, and where, do we, you know, where do we cut the Bible? What does that you know, mean? And, um, and so I hope it's always been helpful as we've been looking through this, seeing there are some divisions and... and um, some are clearer than others. When we start getting into the law and grace, um, I'm going to lay out some theories and, uh, and show some things we're going to touch on a little bit tonight. We'll go in deeper next week. But, um, but kind of following the same format of just answering a few questions, uh, we're going to talk about the dispensation of the law. Why is it called the dispensation of the law? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was given to Moses to give to Israel. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about specifically the Mosaic Law or the Pentateuch or, uh, or uh, you know, that as God laid out uh, his law for his people. But it was given to Moses uh, to give to Israel. 
Moses received the law 50 days after the departure from Egypt. And, uh, and every year, Israel commemorates that day. They have a feast. Do anybody know what that feast is called? You know what it's called? No, close. 50 days after the Passover. I'll give you a hint. It's 50 days after the Passover. <laughs> the day of, or the feast of Pentecost. Penta 50. When we think of Pentecost, what do we typically think of? In the church. I'm sorry? <laughs> Speaking in tongues. Uh, we think of the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached, right? Uh, we may think of the Pentecostal movement, which the tongues and miracles and those things. But, um, uh, but the people were not in town to hear Peter preach that day, you understand, in Acts chapter 2. Or we might say the day of Pentecost, that was the day the Holy Spirit was given, right? Um, they were there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the 50 days after the Passover, and, of course, the first Passover was that angel of death passing over those houses there in Egypt. And they came out of Egypt. There they are uh, on Mount, at Mount Sinai. Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. Where do we find the disp this dispensation of the Bible? Uh, it really begins with Exodus 20, as God lays out, gives, gives, gives Moses the Ten Commandments, is where it starts. And then from the Ten Commandments, it builds out all the other commands uh, that we may call the Mosaic Law. Um, it, uh, its conclusion is a matter of debate, and, on this, uh, and this debate is one of the most fundamental debates, really, in all Christian theology. If you spent much time in Christian theology at all, uh, there really is an issue uh, as we consider what role does the law play, and what role does grace play, and where does this all come together, um, and it really is an issue of, of debate. In fact, I have several older theology books that all contradict each other, and they're all good, pretty good theology books. They all contradict each other on this point, and I don't agree with any of them on my shelf. Um, that shows you kind of how broad this thing is. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, right. Um, what you do here determines whether you live in victory or bondage. Now, we know when this dispensation of promise started and ended. You know, and, and by the way, there are clear-cut divisions, right? Uh, we know when the dispensation of innocence ended, it's when they lost their innocence. That makes sense, right? When they sinned. Uh, we know when uh, uh, the next dispensation took place, uh, the dispensation of conscience, uh, because we have a drastic change. We called it the dispensation of government because there is now a rule that if, if somebody uh, commits uh, murder, they will be killed. Now, now, as far as government or a name for it, that, that one may be kind of tricky, but, uh, but logic brings to the conclusion that there has to be some sort of overseeing body uh, to do this. And what we find from there, the Tower of Babel and all this, we find an organization. We find the first king, Nimrod, trying to establish for himself a kingdom and, uh, and trying to get, bring people to God. They make a tower. And, uh, and from there, as God dispersed the people and confounded the languages, what ended up happening? All these different people groups started trying to make themselves little kingdoms rather than following God. And, uh, and that's one avenue to kind of chase it down through the study. And, uh, um, but, uh, but, but, um, uh, and then, of course, it's very clear, cut and dry. We have the, the, the dispensational promise begins when God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. It's reiterated uh, several times. And then we have uh, a, another time where God reaches down, picks a man, 
pulls the man aside and says, I'm going to give you now my law. And, and, and Israel really, at that moment, becomes a very identifiable people. We have, for the first time, somewhat of a uh, uh, theocracy where, where God begins to lead his people as their king. Um, uh, they have the human leader, Moses, but he doesn't lead like a king. He's uh, kind of the go-between with the king, who is Jesus Christ, or who is, who is God um, at this time. Um, <clears throat> so we know that this dispensation was 430 years, according to Galatians 3.17 that we just read. Um, where does the age of the law end? And again, this is a great debate. If you put it at the birth of Jesus Christ, as some do, making the age of grace beginning really with the New Testament. Uh, by the way, I think New Testament and Old Testament, that division between Matthew and Malachi, I think was a wrong division. That's not inspired, by the way. The Holy Spirit never inspired that. One man uh, decided, I can't remember the guy's name, but he decided, here's a good division. All right? uh, but the Bible very clearly says that Jesus was born under the law. Under the law. To redeem them that are under the law. Um, but uh, some people put it at the birth of Christ. What this tends to do is it creates a lordship salvation. Now, I, I briefly mentioned lordship salvation this morning, and it's hard sometimes when you're preaching through the Gospels. Um, to, it's, it, it's, it's hard to handle that properly because we live in the, day, the age of grace. When, I try to, when you try to take application <laughs> sometimes from, from the historical account of Jesus Christ, if you're not careful, you start to run into lordship salvation issues. You say, what is that? That's if I have to make Jesus Lord of my life to be saved. Now, you may hear people even say that. Uh, uh, I got saved, and I, I prayed, and I made Jesus Lord of my life. And, and uh, is that salvation? If anything, I think making Jesus Lord of my life is closer to sanctification. It's closer to me living a holy life, and, uh, and it's the more I yield to Him, uh, the more He is Lord of my life. But that doesn't negate the fact that He, in fact, is Lord. And to be saved, I think it takes a declaration of recognizing His Lordship, but not necessarily Lord over my life. That's growth. And uh, you say, well, you're kind of splitting hairs there, maybe. Let's use a different word. What we start to run into, then, is kind of a legalistic salvation or salvation by law, or salvation or righteousness by works. How do I attain righteousness, right? Um, for example, Matthew 19, if, if everything after the birth of Jesus is the age of grace, then all the teachings in the Gospels are, uh, are for us in the age of grace. And uh, so Matthew 19, verse 16 and 17, when that, that rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says this, keep the commandments. Now, if I were to stand up and preach that, you would deem me as a heretic. Church, here's what you need to do to have eternal life. Keep the commandments. Oh, preacher, we're not under law, we're under grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God. But that's what Jesus said, you see. And so what we end up doing is we, uh, we, we take those things, and I spiritualize those things, but we take those truths of what Jesus actually said, and we twist it. Well, what Jesus was doing is showing him that he didn't really keep the commandments. And Hold on, don't put words in Jesus' mouth. What did Jesus say? He does not back off from it. Keep the commandments. Then he goes and lists them. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. He goes through several of them. He doesn't list all ten, but he goes through several of the, the, the major ones, and he says, I've done all of this. 
What, what, what lack I? Uh, what lackest I? What, 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 what else should I do? And he says, all right, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus' words, not mine. You see? And, uh, well, he was pointing out that he really hadn't followed the first commandment, that those things were his God. Again, we're reading into it. What did Jesus say? Jesus very plainly said, keep the commandment and thou shalt live. Um, and so what I'm saying is if we put it there, then we get ourselves in trouble and we start taking a lot of the teachings from the Gospels and, start, and say, these are some, re- some requirements that are placed on us. So, um, I'll give you another example. <clears throat> um, I think I have it jotted down here. If you put the end of uh, Jesus, uh, if you put the end of the law at Jesus' birth, uh, then all mention of law or additional commands that Jesus gave, as Jesus, uh, um, uh, as Jesus was born under the law, speaking to people that were under the law, you put you put them under grace. You end up again with lordship salvation. This leads to Christianity of bondage. Um, you know, for example, you start asking the question when you come across certain passages: Have I, have I abandoned all? To follow Jesus? And we have these, we have, we have uh, things in there, you know, am I supposed to sell everything I have in order to follow Jesus? And then again, what we lead to then is we spiritualize it. Well, uh, there shouldn't be anything that we would hold back from giving to God. And that's a great way to live, but would that save you? Not at all. And, um, and so again, we put everything into their context. Many times the people would come to Jesus and they would ask such a question on several occasions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he would, he would say to them, well, you've got to trust in, in me by grace through faith. No, Jesus never said that. He always would point them to an aspect of the law because he came under the law to redeem them that are under the law. Um, I'm going to dive more into that next week, but uh, uh, the next, uh, next one where people tend to put it, and this one is probably the most popular, is at the resurrection of Jesus Christ or at Pentecost, Since they're only 50 days apart, I'm going to kind of put those two together as one. But this creates chaos when determining how to apply New Testament passages, and especially the book of Acts. It creates a lot of chaos. And uh, and the chaos then is only remedied by by spiritualization of the text. Uh, In in other words, we, we, um, we, we take some of those texts that we struggle with, you know, Cornelius gets saved, and he and all his household spoke in tongues. What do we do with this? Well, it just means they were full of the Holy Ghost. Right? And people say, well, you know, and some people will hold to that and say, a sign of being saved is you speak in tongues. There's another passage, and all that were there, they all spoke in tongues. What do we do with that? Okay? Um, Here's an example. Read what Peter said at the day of Pentecost and see if he is preaching grace. If he stood up and said, we are free from the law. In fact, you read through all the book of Acts, uh, uh, really through Acts chapter 8. See if Peter, James, and John were preaching freedom from the law. And what you'll find is that they were not. In fact, that was a big contention they had with Paul when Paul came along and all of a sudden he's preaching freedom from the law. put our thinking caps on and try to wrestle with our preconceived notions 
because I'm attacking the common teaching right now. And like I said, we're going to dive a little deeper into it next week. But what was Peter's message? In Acts chapter 2, he's preaching, and, and by the way, it's a very condemning message. You look at Peter's message, you look at Stephen's message, these were very condemning messages. This Jesus whom you crucified, right? Very condemning message, and by, by the way, a true message. Uh, when, when Paul comes along, it's more a message of what do I do with the information of Jesus Christ. All right? I'll get to that later. But, so they, they interrupt the sermon and they say, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? So what does he say? Anybody remember what Peter said? I'll look at this a little deeper next week, but uh, just wetting our appetite a little bit. Anybody remember what Peter said? Acts chapter 2? Repent and be baptized. Is, it, is that all? For the remission of sins. Repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for remission of sins. Does that sound like another message we have heard in the New Testament? Did anybody else say a message like that? Jesus did in Matthew 16. Anybody else? Mark 16. What? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, Old Testament prophet. Yeah. And what was his message? Uh, repent for the kingdom. I'll kind of lay out uh, a little bit uh, again more next week about, about some of that, and when we get to the king, the dispensation of the kingdom. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting. So what we do is we look at Acts chapter 2, and I've done this. And uh, I'll, we, we play word games. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for remission of sins. Or, or because you've had your sins remitted. And anyway, we try to play this around. But, but, but if you look at that in the age of grace, then I'll say this. The action, the activity of baptism would be a prerequisite for forgiveness of sins. If what Peter said was true, okay, um, just I want to get you thinking a little bit, whet your appetite, make you mad at me. Um, see, what you'll find is Peter and all the other Jews that believed Jesus Christ, they accepted him as Messiah, and by the way, that term Messiah is for who? It's for the Jews, right? Nothing wrong with you calling him Messiah, but, you, but he's not your Messiah, as far as that goes, that was, a, that was a Jewish aspect of Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. But these were what we would call maybe Messianic Jews. They, they, the, 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 the promised one, the promised Messiah had come and had been received by these, and that's what they were preaching. What's interesting is they would speak and they would teach in the synagogue Jesus Christ and were respected as good Jews. Why? Because they were still fulfilling the law. They were still keeping the law. You're not going to have somebody speak in the synagogue who's not keeping the law. So what were they doing in, the, in many cases? They were uh, having Sabbath worship. They were uh, really obeying the law. So what's interesting is 10 years after Pentecost, or 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter is on the rooftop of a man named Simon the Tanner. And he gets in a trance and has a vision. This is 10 years, folks. And do you remember the vision? What, co what came down from heaven in Peter's vision? Meat? Animals. What kind of animals? Unclean ones. And so, so God said to, uh, to, to Peter, take, kill, and eat. And Peter said, 
Well, Lord, since I'm not under the law, I've been eating these things for 10 years. No, he said, not so, Lord. I've never touched these things that are unclean. Nor would I. I mean, he's protesting pretty seriously. Now, I'm not going to do this. And, and, of course, God was showing him something and uh, how he was going to go to, uh, to a Gentile. And he was going to witness a Gentile being saved. But it's interesting is, uh, is you know, why, why was he holding on to that law still? What law here? The, the law concerning unclean animals. If he was free from the law and yet having this stand with these unclean animals, then he was teaching legalism in an age of grace. Which is really what we're going to find in the contention with, with Paul in Acts 15 when he goes down to Jerusalem and he kind of shares what God had given to him. There is a lot of debate and there's a lot of discussion. What happened was certain Jews, uh, Galatians chapter 2, certain Jews had come down to Antioch where Paul was, and the Bible says to search out their liberty to find out what, they, what, in fact, they were doing. It says they went in pretentiously, they went in secretly to see what they were doing. They're eating pork. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing all these things. They're having church on Sunday. They're not requiring the Gentile believers to get circumcised. These are things in violation of the Jewish law. And so it created this big stir, which, which I'll take you to uh, later. Um. In fact, if you, do you remember when Paul withstood Peter to his face? You guys remember in Galatians 2, Paul withstood Peter to his face? Do you guys remember why? He was eating with Gentiles. Jews from Jerusalem came to visit them, and he withdrew himself. See, Peter still had an issue with this. He wasn't fully settled on this thing of grace. And so Paul was stood to his face say, wait a minute, you've received the message God gave me, this message of grace. And uh, in fact, I, I keep quoting Galatians 2. Uh, if, you, if you still have your Bibles open in Galatians 3, look at Galatians 2. I really want to jump into Galatians. Galatians is what started solidifying some of these things for me as I started really just kind of studying verse by verse going through it. Um, uh, let's see, where do I want to start? Um, in verse 4, the Bible talks about that the, because of false brethren, unaware, brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So one of the things he's going to point out, this, he's going to, he's going to, he, uh, as he's writing to the church here at Galatia, he's going to talk about when he went down to Jerusalem and had that Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And, um, and he said people had come, and they were spying out their liberty they had in Christ. Now, when you see Paul talk about liberty, he's talking about freedom from the law. When he talks about bondage, he's talking about bondage to the law. All right? So we have to understand what is he talking about here. Um, and so, so he says they sought to bring him into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat uh, whatsoever they were, and may, it, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. Uh, in other words, he didn't really care who they were, that they, they were in the wrong. Uh, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Uh, they didn't add to that bondage. 
But contrarywise, when they saw the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, get this now, as the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter. Interesting. There's a gospel of the, circum, or the uncircumcision given to Paul, and there's the gospel of the uncircumcision given to Peter. There's a clear difference here. And, uh, and boy, I, I want to get in. I'm, I'm trying to save much of this for next week. Um, I really want to go through a study in Galatians is what I want to do because, my, you know, this started to really kind of open my eyes to this. But, um, um, but he goes on. In fact, let, let's move down where I wanted to come to. Verse number 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before a certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. So he, he already understood liberty. He already stood freedom from the law. He ate with Gentiles. But when they, would, uh, when they were come... These from, from James, uh, those from, they, they were Jews from Jerusalem. Uh, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So here's the idea. Peter knows about liberty. He's probably a middle-aged man at this point. And he has lived his whole life under the Jewish law faithfully. Okay? Uh, but now... God has revealed this truth to Paul, and he understood it, so much so that this church that had been started with Gentiles, he ate with them. They had their Sunday night potluck after church, and he was eating with those Gentiles. Jews came from Jerusalem, and, and, and I'm going to kind of just insert what I think was taking place in his mind. I don't know if they know this truth. I don't know if that's what took place, but there was a, uh, an insecurity in Peter to where when the other Jews came, uh, he didn't want to, <laughs> to be seen in this light in case they didn't understand. Wait, guys, you don't understand. We're free from the law. We can do these things. Well, P Paul whisked him to his face, say, wait a minute, you are now preaching a double message. You have a double standard. So he stood him to his face, and it caused others to dissimulate as well. Barnabas and others that were with him. And so what I'm saying is, is uh, Peter didn't fully have this thing settled at this point. Paul had to really challenge him on this thing. Um, we'll dive into that a little bit more next week as, as we talk about this. Um, the next place where people put it, um, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop myself. Okay, I want to keep going. I'm going to stop myself. Um, so, so some people put it at Pentecost or the resurrection. That used to be me. That was me for a long time. And, and then I saw, uh, I saw some contradictions. By the way, when you rightly divide, it settles a lot of issues like, what do we do with tongues? When you rightly divide, it settles uh, some issues like, what about those signs gifts? And, uh, and, and we start comparing Scripture with Scripture. When we, when we start rightly dividing, we start to see what the purpose of things were. And, and by the way, one thing I found with Bible interpretation, there are certain questions you want to ask. I think one of the big questions that we ought to ask as Bible students, when we're coming to a passage, we ought to ask ourselves, what is God doing with Israel at this time? That needs to be one of the questions we ask as we look at it. And, that, and if we can answer that question, then we'll find our answer to things like tongues, things like signs. And uh, we'll get into that more later. Um, next one, a uh, place where people put it, at the casting aside of Israel and the sending forth of Paul. Um, 
this is more where I'm starting to line up, and uh, the biggest challenge is to find where exactly this took place. Uh, but somewhere in the middle of the book of Acts, in Acts 15, they're, they're arguing, uh, I mentioned that already a little bit, uh, whether or not the Gentile believers are free from the law or not. <clears throat> now, they're coming into the same faith, right? They were first called Christians where? Antioch. And we get the idea, these are the same people. Now, when they accepted Messiah, there was a measure of demarcation from traditional Judaism. Would you agree to that? Uh, uh, in fact, they were so upset with Peter and John, who were preaching still the Jewish aspect, but showing that, that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the main thrust of their preaching. And so, what did they say to James and John? They didn't say, you're teaching people to abandon our law. No, they said, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And you say, well, what doctrine were they preaching? Well, that they killed Christ, and that Christ was the Messiah. And people were turning, and people were getting baptized. And um, this was a part of the message. So, so when Paul comes along, and, uh, and these, these Jews had come in to search out their liberty, they report back, and they say, wait a minute, they're not requiring circumcision, they're uh, eating these meats, you know, some of these major issues that are a huge violation of the law, Paul has to go down to Jerusalem and share with them. In fact, in Galatians 2, let's back up just a little bit. Um, Galatians 1. Boy, I want to show, share all these verses. Uh, verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in mine own nation, because more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. Paul said he excelled above many of his peers in the Jewish tradition, because he was very zealous. And it says, uh, but, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Now, the word there for heathen is the word, um, uh, many times it is translated as Gentiles, but it means the nations, uh, the people groups, the heathen. Uh, Non-Jews is, is, is specifically what it's talking about. Um, immediately, I, and then notice this, I conferred not with flesh and blood. He didn't go and bounce this off of Peter. He didn't go and see what the other apostles had to say, which is very interesting. And it says, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. Now, when persecution came to the church, where, did the, where were the apostles? They were in Jerusalem. All the laymen scattered, but the apostles tarried in Jerusalem. So, here's the natural thinking. God calls you to be an apostle. Well, I better go to where the other apostles are and learn from them. Paul didn't do that, because God was doing something special with Paul. Interestingly, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was doing something special with Paul. So then he says this, Neither went up to Jerusalem with them that were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So three years, then he goes to Jerusalem. 
But after but other of the apostles, I saw none save James, the Lord's brother. So he only saw Peter and he saw James. Now the things which I wrote unto you before, God, uh, uh, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterward, I came into the regions of Syria and uh, uh, Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, uh, which were in Christ. But they heard only that he which persecuted us in time past now preacheth the faith which, which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Then 14 years after I went again to Jerusalem. So now we have 14 years later before Paul really enters the ministry outside of his local church. He went with Barnabas. Remember Acts, I think it's uh, 14. Paul and Barnabas were called to the ministry and they were set apart. This is this time. And then took Titus with me also and I went up by revelation. Now this again, he didn't confer with flesh and blood. Here he went up by revelation and commune, uh, communicated unto them the gospel which I preached the, uh, among the Gentiles. So he shares with those at Jerusalem this gospel that he was preaching. But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Oh, that's a big problem, right? That, uh, and, that became, became, uh, uh, and that because of false brethren unaware brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave uh, uh, place by subjection, uh, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Let me jump down. Uh, look at verse 7. Uh, but contrarywise, when they saw the gospel, the uncircumcision was committed to me, and the gospel of circumcision unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So he's saying this is the same God that called Peter to go to the circumcision, called me to go to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, uh, these were pillars in the church, get this now, perceived the grace was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You know what that's telling us? Paul is dealing with a contention as he shared his story that this was not given to him by teaching, by flesh and blood, but by revelation, his three years in the desert, uh, revelation of God. Uh, when they heard it, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. You know what they were saying? You've been called of God. You have a message from God. And yes, Peter has his message, and Paul has his message, as God is still dealing with the Jews. Um, they received him. Now notice what it says. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, unto the Gentiles, and they to the circumcision. They're continuing their mission. Now verse 10, only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So here's what they were saying. We understand you've got something different. We just ask that you would remember the poor. And Paul said, well, we were already doing that. Isn't that interesting? I'll dive more into that later. But, um, but the casting aside of Israel and sending forth a Paul, that challenge is kind of, when did this take place? And I do believe there is some overlap. I think that's what makes Acts so confusing, not confusing, but interesting when you study it. Because remember the other dispensations, we saw a clear line. We saw clear lines. Next week, I'm going to take you to Daniel and show you why uh, the law didn't end, but it was put on pause. And that's why we don't necessarily call the tribulation a separate dispensation, because it's actually a continuation, as Jesus even spoke much of the tribulation, some things that were going to happen. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Well, why if the law was done with? Right? Uh, and, and it lays out a lot of these other, other issues. And so... Um, 
But that's, that's the big challenge. Um, so when you place it here, when you, when you, when you place the, the end of the law, if you would, in middle of Acts, really when Paul, uh, when, when everything shifts kind of towards Paul, uh, it creates a very grace-oriented Christian life. Paul said this, the one that who follows the law, let him be accursed. That is extremely grace-oriented. When you're put under the law, right, and over and over again, even as Paul shared his own testimony, he was trying to achieve his own righteousness, which is by the law. Uh, Romans, uh, what is that, 11? My prayer and desire for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They, going about to establish their own righteousness, have failed to yield themselves to the righteousness of God, which is, uh, which is by grace. You see? So he's kind of laying, laying all this out. It's extremely grace-oriented. We are dead to the law, he says. But after the, uh, uh, um, and so I'll move on. We'll get into that a little more next week. Um, other people put it, this is a very small group, but they put it after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Basically, after the entire book of Acts and much of the New Testament was written, uh, um, it really creates confusion uh, for ap uh, application of any text that was written between 33 AD and 70 AD. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so next, where, where, do, where do we find this dispensation? Well, Exodus, really to somewhere in the middle of Acts, is the position I'm taking, uh, and, and some of those that I showed you where, where others take it, uh, where grace begins. Um, that is to say, if you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about people who are under the law. When you see a command, you need to look at it and say, this, uh, this is the law spoken to, uh, to people who are under the law, and not a direct commandment for me. By the way, I will say this. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Um, you might even find the same commandment presented under grace. For example, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 and 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it goes on saying uh, that it's a command with promise. What was that? That's, that's in the age of grace reiterating the, um, uh, the command to, obey, to honor your father and your mother. Uh, this also means that if you find it in the Gospels, it was people under the law teaching people that are under the law. It, it, it's expressing how to live under the law in light that the Messiah is here. And many of those things were kingdom truths. He sent out his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And we take that and we run with it and we say, his disciples went out by two saying, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They weren't doing that in the Gospels. They were preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. Very similar to really what John was preaching. Repent and be baptized, for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. And so, um, again, we spiritualize it, and I think there is great application there, but what was he sending them out to do? To preach the message of the Kingdom. Um, <clears throat> In the Gospels, if anyone asks you for something, you're supposed to give it to them. Is that not what Jesus taught? Now, how many of us do that? How many times do we drive by that guy outside of Fred Meyer who's holding that sign saying, I'm too lazy to work? We drive right by and we don't even feel bad about it. See, we don't, we don't believe that that's a commandment for us. Kind of interesting. Um, 
And then later, the Bible tells us that everyone, every man should take care of his own, and he that doesn't uh, uh, work shouldn't eat. Wait a minute. Here we have some, you know, if, if we don't know how to rightly divide this, here it says if someone asks you for your, uh, you know, jacket, give them your shirt also. And then over here, if you don't work, you don't eat. What do we do with that? So what is fundamentally new in this revelation? And we'll quickly wrap this up. Almost every aspect of the spiritual life is new in this revelation. God gave his people a clear identification. Before it was promise, right? You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have Jacob's children that, that later became the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. But now it's, it's identifiable more than a promise. It's identifiable around a body of law, a body of teaching uh, as a people. Almost every aspect of the spiritual life showing them how to be in a right relationship with God. The law provided uh, 613 commandments. I've not looked through them all. Most rabbis, there's a couple of differentiate, uh, 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 depart from it, but common numbers about three, uh, 630 commandments to be in right relationship with God. 248 positives and 365 negatives. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. In modern Jewish life, some of the commandments are only able to be fulfilled when in Israel with a temple. And so there are 369 that are applicable for all Jews. Of the 369, there are only 270 that are non-circumstantial, thus requirement for every Jew. Don't you love how legalism has loopholes? <laughs> so what is fundamentally or by revelation true for all time, or what carries over, what doesn't matter that it's, uh, uh, or, uh, or what, yeah, what doesn't carry over, or in other words, it doesn't matter that it, whether it's under the law or not, it's always true. Um, some examples of the spiritual commands that were fundamentally new. Um, jumping, my notes jumbled here. Some examples of the things that are fundamentally new. Sabbath keeping and its regulations, uh, uh, really it's broken down into categories. Um, um, but they have regulations against creating. There are 39 modern uh, uh, rabbinic regulations in this group. Make, you can't make bread, you can't sew garments, you can't uh, write books, you can't build. In fact, if you go to Israel on the Sabbath day, you stay in uh, uh, some of the hotels over there, uh, I had heard, I've not been, um, but they have pre-torn um, toilet paper. You say, well, that's not a work. Why do you, why they pre-tear the toilet paper? It actually has nothing to do with work. They, they look at it as in six days, God created, and the seventh day, he rested. So on the Sabbath day, you're not to create anything, and by tearing a piece of toilet paper, you're creating a new piece. So they have pre-torn toilet paper. You pre-do your meals ahead of time, so that you can have a nice meal on the Sabbath day. And uh, you that's when you create. Um, Sabbath and Jubilee years were created, uh, sacrificial laws, tithing of produce and of land. And then uh, while the law had record of morality, very little new morality was expressed in the law. Morality is often expressed in the law, but never based in the law. Therefore, morality will exist as long as its basis exists. For example, you go out into the street and you say, hey, is it right to just murder somebody? And, uh, and, and, and what, what would the, most people answer, unless they're a psychopath? No, it's not right to murder somebody. You tell them why. You're probably not going to get an answer like, well, it says something in the Ten Commandments. They probably would say, something, well, it's just it's wrong. You see, these morality issues. Uh, now, the commandments expressed the heart of the morality, right? So God, God gave, gave these concepts, if you would, of morality, and, uh, and so you don't need law 
necessarily to be moral. You have to have what's root, what, what, what the, the basis of that morality is. Um, there is truth contained in the law that is foundational for all times, but there is no command that originated in the law that is foundation or fundamental for all time, uh, like murder. Right? Uh, what has changed since the dispensation? What doesn't carry over? Nothing of the law carries over. Look at, look at Romans 7 real quick. I'll show you this one. Romans 7. Verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, he's given an illustration of marriage. And when your spouse dies, you have no more obligation to that spouse. Okay? And he kinda, he's kind of laying that out using marriage and the law as that, as that requirement. Now, if, if you have a wife, if you have a spouse pass away and you remarry, it probably would not be healthy to always be comparing the new wife to the old wife. Just for the new relationship. Well, my old wife always did this. Now, is it, would it be wrong to bring them up? I don't think so, you know, uh, and to talk about things, maybe memories, I don't know. But, uh, but to always say, you know, well, she cooked like this. She cleaned like this. Uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, the new wife would get irritated pretty quick, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and, and really what it's saying is, 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 is like that wife that passed away, you have a new wife, uh, the law is passed away, and we have Christ. Look at verse number 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we, we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not with oldness of the letter. And, and really, this is the big case in the book of Romans. But, but I also want to say this, that even as Paul's laying this out, I believe he's laying this out to his Jewish brothers and sisters who were under the law. Earlier in the book of, of, Genesis, of, of Romans, he makes the case that the law was given to who? The Jews. Or it's worded, them that are under the law. Those that are without the law, who's that? The Gentiles, all non-Jews, are law unto themselves and their conscience-bearing bearing record, either accusing or excusing them. You see? And so there still is a standard, but uh, um, let's go on. Um, <clears throat> conflicts revealed in this dispensation with today's society. One of the most fundamental issues in today's church is the question, what is the purpose of the law? And mo most all, always answered uh, this um, the way I used to answer it, and I think it's incorrect. The law leads us to salvation. And it's, it's based on uh, in Galatians 3, 24. Why don't we turn there real quick, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Galatians 3. Galatians 3 and verse number 24 <clears throat> says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Um, you know, and we'll say things like, well, you know, and Paul kind of gives an example, uh, 
uh, in another place. Uh, I didn't know that I shouldn't covet until the, the law says thou shalt not covet. And I realized what a covetous person I was, and I came to Christ. And we'll kind of teach it that way. But here's a logical question. If the law leads people to faith in Christ, who should be the most expected to, turn, to run to Christ? I'm sorry? The Jews. The Jews. Uh, the Jews who are under the law. So let, go to Jerusalem today and see if that's working out. The law is, is, is leading them to faith in the law. That's really one of the biggest issues in the New Testament, that their confidence is in the law and that they're, you know, the strength of the law. And that, that's what they point to and that's what they look to. I think we've completely misunderstood and misinterpreted this passage. The, the word there, schoolmaster, is not a word we use in modern English. Um, and, and so I think a lot of us look at that and, and think it means like teacher. Uh, the word there, and, and actually it was kind of a, a British word uh, back in the, the early translation, uh, time of the translation, but it's, it carries the idea of like a nanny. Now, as it relates to school, what's the nanny's job as it relates to school? And you say, I don't know, I don't have a nanny. <laughs> Their job is to get the children ready and get them to school. All right? Um, the same word is often translated as guardian. The word carries the idea, it doesn't carry any idea of teaching somebody, but rather protecting something. To bring us into Christ. Notice, notice that phrase there, to bring us, uh, um, what verse is that again? Um, uh, verse 24, to bring us is italicized. Now, what that means is, uh, is and the King James translators had integrity as they were translating. When they had to insert a word for the sentence to flow or to make sense, they would italicize it to say, we added this. We inserted this. This was not in the Greek word. But typically, it, it, they put it there so that that verse would flow. Okay? And, um, and so, uh, let's look at this. Wherefore, the laws are schoolmaster. Let's just skip that for a second. Unto Christ. To bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, and after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So, the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster unto Christ, or to carry us to Christ. After that faith has come, by the way, how are we saved today? By faith. After the faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, or there's no more need for a schoolmaster. Now, no one today is saved by law. We're saved by grace through faith. Do we then need a schoolmaster if it is by faith? No. How then does it lead us to Christ? Well, it, it doesn't. But again, remember I asked, asked the question when we were reading the Scripture, what's happening with Israel at this time? What's going on with Israel? It led the Jewish people unto Christ so that the time of faith would come. Another way to look at it is this. God made Abraham a promise. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make of you a great nation. And through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All right, so God looks down and he sees uh, Israel multiplying and they're there in Egypt as slaves. And he looks at them and, and, uh, and, and, and there's the potential that they're going to lose their identity. So he, he rescues them out of Egypt, and there they are in the wilderness, and they're, they're identifiable as a people by name, 
But what is going to protect this people? What is going to keep this people? So God gives them a law, and what does that law do? It identifies them. I'm going to give you guys 613 things that separate you from all the other nations, and by which you are identifiable as my people. So that when this this, uh, prophecy is fulfilled, 1,500 years later, by Jesus Christ, people will know I kept my promise. And so the law in the meantime is going to keep them together. It's going to keep them as a schoolmaster, as a guardian, keeping them as that people, keeping them with direction, keeping them in a right standing with God until Messiah comes. Then there's no more need for this schoolmaster, this guardian, this protector to keep them in this place. Does that make sense? See, what we tend to do is we we use this. Again, once that faith has come, there's no more need for a schoolmaster. But as long as the church believes that the law leads people to Christ, the church will promote certain degrees of legalism for the saved and the unsaved. You'll come to Christ if you... uh, um, You'll come to Christ and... uh, uh, Statement I put here doesn't make sense. (laughs) You say, well... uh, uh, you know, how did you come to Christ? Did you come to Christ under the law? No, I came to Christ by grace, right? So you say, well, well, what about your children? Don't you want them to be saved one day? So what do we do? We, 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 we teach them the law. We teach them things. And by the way, there is a moral element to the law. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, I, I always think, you know, when we talk about taking down the Ten Commandments in the schoolroom and stuff, what's so wrong about teaching little Johnny? It's wrong to steal. And it's wrong, you know, and you should honor your parents and and all these things. I think we we would do good to have that in there. But what we tend to do, I'm familiar with the right way of the master, Ray Comfort uh, and all that stuff, right? So he uses an example that Jesus did, I think, twice in the Gospels. People came, what should I do to be saved? And he points them to the law. And he uses that as an example, and he uses this passage in that way. I think a danger is this. By the way, I'm glad anybody got saved. Uh, And if the law was used to kind of break their heart and bring them to that place, wonderful, praise the Lord. Here's the danger, what I talked about earlier, that lordship salvation. If I'm showing you, like, here are all the ways that you've broken God's law and you are wrong with God because of all these things. Now, Jesus died to pay the price for these things. If you receive him by faith, then you can be saved and be forgiven of all these things. Now you're starting to live your life and you're like, like, wait a minute. If those things put me in wrong standing with God, I better make sure I keep those things. Now, this may be semantics, this may be hair splitting, but, but, um, uh, 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 but, but I think if we're not careful, we start teaching that. And so here's what Ray Comfort says very often, and it drives me insane. So, Blake, you believe you're a sinner? You believe you stood before God on Judgment Day? By the way, Romans 2 tells us we're not going to stand by the Ten Commandments. We're going to stand condemned by our own conscience if we're not Jews. And that's enough. Christ died to save us from our sins. You don't have to convince somebody you are a sinner, right? So I show you all this, right? In order for you to be saved, here's what he says every time. Listen to him. Repent of your sins and trust Christ and you'll be saved. Do we believe in work salvation or do we believe in grace salvation? Repent of your sins if you want to be saved. Folks, that's works. Now, now, what am I repenting of? I, I believe repentance should be a part of it. What am I really repenting of? 
I'm repenting in my own works. I'm repenting in my own, trying to achieve my righteousness, my way. And I'm turning to Christ alone. Repentance towards God, faith towards Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, we start saying, this is how you get right with God. Yes, believe in Jesus Christ, but also repent, which is a lot closer to the Jewish message in the early parts of Acts than it is to Paul's message in Galatians and Romans and, 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 and the rest of the New Testament. And so the danger starts to become this bondage again when the Bible says we are to live in liberty. So when we, when we look at this, it starts to lead to that direction. I start to live according to the law. By the way, I can live according to the law all day long, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to be living under bondage. Or it can come and say, by grace, I am saved, not of works. So then what do we do? Well, Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this. Because, because what, what we, we run into this, 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 this problem. Well, then people are just going to live however they want. And they're going to sin like there's no tomorrow if they think salvation is free. Have you heard that before? When I talk about the freeness of forgiveness and salvation, that there's nothing you can do. Well, people are going to do whatever they want. Well, guess what? People do that anyway. But we forget the whole spirit of grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, the grace we're saved by, hath appeared unto all men, teaching us. Now that I'm saved, it's going to teach me something. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. See, when you preach freedom from the law and, and that it's all by grace, if you have a proper understanding of grace, you realize that grace and lawlessness really don't go together. Paul said it this way, Brethren, you've been born unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh. When he talks about bondage and liberty. We're going to try living holy, but we do it with a completely different motivation. It's a motivation of gratitude for the grace that's been given. And uh, I better end it there. We'll, uh, we'll pick up next week, and, and, uh, and I'm going to try to show you some evidence why I believe the age of grace, uh, again, there's going to be some overlap, but why the age of grace, I believe, is in full swing, uh, closer to mid-acts than, than earlier positions. And, uh, and I do challenge you to, to kind of take these, study them, take notes, go back and study um, I, I, I've, been, I've tried to run from this, I promise. <laughs> as, as I've looked at it, I'm like, I can't escape it now, though. And I go to Galatians, and it has a whole new light. And I go to Romans, and it has a whole new light. And, uh, and I start to see really what's played out. And we don't have to play word games with people. Like, for example, people that believe salva- ba- ba- baptism is required for salvation. Well, you find out, wait, that was a Jewish aspect, a part of the message there. 